Good morning, good afternoon and good evening. Whenever you are listening to this podcast, we welcome you to another episode of the Pre-Raphaelite Society podcast. It's Hannah here and today with, with Alex, we are joined by Kirsty Stonal Walker to talk all things Fanny Cornforth. Kirsty Stonal Walker has researched and written about Fanny Cornforth for almost 30 years. She's the author of Stunner, The Fall and Rise of Fanny Cornforth. Pre-Raphaelite Girl Gang and Light and Love, as well as two novels, A Curl of Copper and Pearl and We Are Villains All. Her blog, The Kissed Mouth, has published over 800 posts on all aspects of 19th century art history, specialising the lives of lesser known female models and artists. And on a personal note, it's been such an amazing uh, resource for me um, to go through. So, Kirsty, um, I actually found it really fascinating that neither Fanny nor Cornforth were her actual name. No. Um, <laughs> an invention by her. So could you tell us who Fanny Cornforth was? What was her background? How did she come to be part of the Paraphrase? like movements sure um yeah well it's really it is absolutely fascinating and I think half of the reason that Fanny ended up with the reputation she did was because her name wasn't actually Fanny Cornforth and she'd assumed this persona and mm. people read a lot of that a lot of kind of the, the, the things that are kind of wrong about Fanny and said about Fanny come from this kind of assumed name but no she began life as Sarah Cox who was a blacksmith's daughter from a little tiny village on the south coast and there were two blacksmith families within the village and so her father was the second blacksmith and so the whole family was not doing well at all and she was the oldest child and all of her siblings slowly died off and her mother died and her last sister her name was Fanny and I don't know if that's significance, but mm. Fanny, um, Sarah, the eldest daughter, would have been of an age when that would have had a massive impact because her mother died shortly afterwards. And her father yes. took them all off to Brighton to try and find other work when Fanny was a teenager and she went into, into service. And so she's still called Sarah at this point. It becomes really confusing to talk about her. But <laughs> when... She found out her father was then dying as well. This poor young lass from the South Coast wanted to have kind of one moment of fun in her life. So she went up to London with her aunt to see the fireworks for the return of Florence Nightingale from the Crimean. And she met an artist who wanted to paint her. And so that's when she became Fanny Cornforth, or when she became Fanny. <laughs> she didn't become Fanny Cornforth at that point, but she became Fanny. And she stayed in London and the myth was born. Basically, this girl came from nowhere and launched herself onto the pre-Raphaelite scene in about 1858. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. I mean, I had no idea that she went to view the fireworks. Yeah, um, that was it. To, that's absolutely incredible. Ah. We don't even have any kind of idea that she was planning to stay or whether, mm. you know, how, because she was with her aunt. Her aunt was quite a respectable woman. And she was sat at Kramer Gardens watching the fireworks and um, she was having dinner in kind of they had these alcoves where you could eat some dinner whilst watching the fireworks and the displays and everything. And Rosetti just came up behind her, Dante Gabriel Rosetti came up behind her, grabbed hold of her hair and pulled all her pins out. And said, I just wanted to see how lovely your hair was. <laughs> and, and instead of smacking him one, <laughs> which probably she should have, <laughs> she thought, you know, well, that's fine. He goes, would you like to be my model? And she went, all right, then. And that was it. All right, then. <laughs> she, Why not? Right. I? I've got nothing better going on, let's be honest. 
And so oh, she had wow. um, these kind of these little rooms in Soho, which, of course, people read a lot into as well, because she had some rooms in Soho, but she lived next door to Karl Marx. <laughs> so wow. like, nobody ever says Karl Marx, what a goer he was. But because poor old Fanny was um, there in Soho, her rooms were paid for either by Rossetti or by Rossetti's best friend, George Price Boyce, who just mm. they liked having her around. And she was very good company. And she was very jolly and she was very down to earth and just really nice to hang out with. And they used to go off to the zoo and stuff like that. She posed for them both. And yeah, they just, you know, she just became part of the fixtures and fittings. I just find it so interesting, um, you know, talking about this side of the pre-Raphaelites, you know, like the fact that they actually had lives and they were actually friends and, mm. you know, the things that they got up to. Um, so off the back of that, why were you so personally drawn to her and what, what made you, what, what started the whole journey behind your research on her? I did the um, Open Universities Foundation degree on the arts. And the first year you do, which is A102, you do art, music, literature, philosophy and all this, all based around the Victorians. And so when we did art, they gave us the pre-Raphaelites and told us how awful all this was because this is the 90s when I did my degree. Wow. <laughs> and said, this is terrible art. You're going to hate all of this. And I was like, wow, I really like it. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. But <laughs> one thing, of course, with the pre-Raphaelites at that time was Jan Marsh had published the pre-Raphaelite sisterhood not very long beforehand. And we knew what the names of the women were. And so we knew who Elizabeth Siddle was and we knew who Jane Morris was. And we knew that Fanny Cornforth was a terrible woman and nobody liked her. And I was just fascinated because you could find out quite a lot about Elizabeth Siddle and Jane Morris, even at that time. Mm. But all you could find out about Fanny was everyone hated her and they wouldn't shut up about it. And so I was like, but I need to know what she's done in order to be this mm. hated by people. And that really is what set me going. Just I wanted to know what she, how bad she was. And as it turned out, she wasn't bad at all. <laughs> and so that fascinated me even more because, you, you, you know, you're 20 and you're researching something going, why are all these people lying? I don't understand. And you just can't leave it alone then. And so mm. that's, you know, and, and then I was fascinated by somebody in history being so lied about. And then mm. when you when you get old and you've been studying women for a long time, you realise that there's an awful lot of lying in history as especially mm. about women. And so finding out that people lied about Fanny an awful lot takes me on to how people lied about a load of other women in the pre-Raphaelite circle and probably throughout history in themselves. And so it's one of those things that snowballed, really. And here we are. <laughs> yeah, you alluded to, Kirsty, like the salacious kind of misogynistic gossip that exists about Fanny. And also the fact, I think, there's a passivity, um, a passive nature that's kind of ascribed to muses in the facts, this kind of baked in misogyny, um, that they that this isn't kind of a reciprocal um, creative relationship. So I just wonder if you could tell us a bit more about the records that you wanted to set straight with uh, Fanny. Yeah, I mean, when we start with the fact that she, the first thing I ever read about Fanny was she was a prostitute who was down the strand spitting nuts at men she fancied. And I just I couldn't work out one how a woman would cry crack a walnut in her teeth in the first place that yeah. whole very visual you're like well that can't be true <laughs> but then you just but then that tells you so much about the man who told that story who wasn't there mm. at the time William Bell Scott who hated her because she 
allegedly said something about his hair loss at a party. <laughs> I love and because, that. And because, yeah, and this is a story that, again, he wasn't present when she said this thing. Mm. And Rosetti told him because Rosetti is a little cannon loader when you kind of learn more about Rosetti. I don't, uh, it's a difficult one because I think there's some, some things about Rosetti's mental health that we do not talk about. And mm. his ability to kind of alienate people and use other people as collateral damage in his kind of taking down people. And that's, I think Fanny got an awful lot of that by being uh, somebody present in his life a lot. And so he, I'm guessing, told William Bell Scott, oh, by the way, Fanny said something really funny about the fact you've lost all your hair. And so he then goes on and tells these terrible stories about her, that she was Mm. the creature with three waists and that she was just not very nice and she was a nut-spitting prostitute from the Strand. and like Not half well, a that's... dodge of rumour to spread, isn't it? It's a, but the problem with it is it's such a corking story because you like, you know, it's, it's a fascinating mm. visual. And so people told it. And so I think half the problem with Fanny Cornforth, and I'm guessing an awful lot of women in history, is that they have not got the importance of the men whose lives they are in. And so, mm. I mean, I, oh gosh, who's, there was a recent book on Edward Byrne Jones by, name escapes me, a lady wrote to a, by a, very, very recently, and she refers to Fanny as Francis Cornforth. And I was like, really? Well, okay, but because Fanny's not a very important person in that story, so why bother researching? And mm. so the problem with the women I tend to, be fixated on is that they're not very important women and so I'm willing to dig and dig and dig and dig and if you're doing the life of Rossetti or the life of important man in Victorian England Fanny's not important to you and so that's how stories like she's a nut-spitting prostitute she stole she lied she was illiterate and all these other lies that come around Fanny Cornforth myth are not worth your time to research it seems because they're not the point of your story. Mm-hmm. And so, mm. Mm. That's really interesting. I mean, I, I will never forget um, something that you said at the uh, Pre-Raphaelite uh, general meeting that took place at the Birmingham and Midland Institute this year. And some of our members were lucky enough to be able to attend that um to, to attend that lecture and it was really really interesting and you you made a really important point about the fact that you consider her as possibly the most unpreraphelite of women um and you know what do we even mean by that and rather than looking at the behaviors of the women shouldn't we be looking at the behaviors of the men in that instance and i just yes. thought that that was, it really resonates with my my research and i'm sure it resonates with hannah's research as well and it's mm. just a really important point to go on i think this this stock stereotype that we have of pre-Raphaelite women in art and the fact that uh, Fanny actually is not that in reality. No. I think it's, I when I, um, I read uh, quite a few novels where Fanny is involved and the novelists always seem to be quite concerned with the fact that she isn't pre-Raphaelite. She's not what you imagine when you think of a pre-Raphaelite heroine, you imagine somebody who is thin and wispy and can be blown away on a breeze and spiritual and all these things and Fanny is resolutely practical and she is 
you know, capable of strong arming Rossetti into things that possibly might be good for him. But if he doesn't like it and she looks after herself and when she gets abandoned by Rossetti repeatedly, she makes do and she gets herself into a situation where she's okay again until he calls her back. And Mm. we don't, we don't think there are many women in the pre-Raphaelite movement who we concentrate on that aspect of their character. And I think possibly mm. the myth of Elizabeth Siddle is partly to blame for this because we just think, oh, poor Elizabeth Siddle, and then she dies. And she doesn't mm. have a chance to kind of pick herself up and make it on her own as a plucky female artist. She dies before she has a chance to do that. And Jane Morris marries the next best man she comes along and she's okay. So we don't get too many examples of women being plucky and looking after themselves and being independent. And so that's not what we think of when we think of pre-Raphaelite women, which is a damn shame because pre-Raphaelite women are just women in the pre-Raphaelite movement. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. there's, not a, there's not a thing that they should be. And so I think, yeah, we should. And also the, when you start talking about pre-Raphaelite women, it becomes a bit of a a grey area of who counts as a pre-Raphaelite woman anyway, as I found out when I was doing Girl Gang. That, you know, when you go on, of course, there are many very plucky, very independent women. Maurice Batilli Stillman is a little powerhouse mm. of art and you know, Louise Joplin manages perfectly well, thank you very much. And so, yeah. but mm. I think when you look at Fanny, because she's that early generation of pre-Raphaelite women, she's not what you expect. She's a yeah. buxom, mm. sturdy blonde woman who's going to run mm. a pub, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> <Love> you, <Rosetti>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think you're absolutely spot on in terms of where do we begin and where do we end with regards to identifying a woman as pre-Raphaelite? Because currently within my research, I know this is a bit of a tangent, but I'm looking into the likes of Anna Mary Howitt, Rebecca Solomon, Barbara Lee Smith, Bessie Parks, and, you know, some of these women's names in particular, you would not necessarily associate with pre-Raphaelitism, but there is an inconsistency in scholarship who tie them to the movement loosely or identify them yes. as pre-Raphaelite painters, pre-Raphaelite poets, but mm-hmm. you wouldn't character, you know, you wouldn't ca- characteristically identify Bessie Parks as a pre-Raphaelite poet. You know, she she's known as the mm-hmm. feminist reformer. And so there is this, you know, this this difficulty and this complexity in what do we mean by a pre-Raphaelite woman? How do we identify them? Do I de- do we identify them by their art form, their style? Do we identify them just merely through their association with these men? You know, where mm. do we begin and where do we end with that? Um, so yeah. let, let's zone in back into the pre-Raphaelite-esque world. And what key artworks um, do you like? Do you like the most, or do you prefer the most that feature Fanny Cornforth as a, you know? With, with her collaboration as a model and as a muse with artists, would you say? What would you say your favourite works are? That's a very difficult question. I mean, I mean, I love the oils that Rossetti did of her, but I have to admit, and I'm not doing this very loudly, I love the work that Edward Byrne-Jones did of her. Mm. Because there's, there's a year yeah. when Rossetti says, I'm not going to paint any other woman but my beloved wife. And that lasts, you know, like five minutes. But <laughs> Fanny goes off and finds Byrne Jones, who she's met because she's been over to Redline Square. And so she knows the Byrne Joneses and she models for him. And so you have um, like the backgammon player where it's that pencil drawing and she's there sat opposite playing backgammon with um, mm. some chap. And that's beautiful. And it's 
so like the photograph of her in Rossetti's garden that you just think that's just an amazing, amazing picture. But I mean, I love the Blue Barrow is one of my favourite Rossetti paintings of her because it's so beautiful and so blue and so vivid and so kind of full of life that I love that. But then that is possibly the last picture that he did of her before he started scraping her out and turning to Alexa Wilding. And so there aren't actually that many paintings of Fanny. There's quite a few mm. sketches of the domestic sketches because Rossetti was one to draw his ladies. But I think if I had to pick a favourite, then the circular oil painting portrait of her by Rossetti, where it looks like she's almost by firelight, is a very touching piece indeed. Mm. And so I think that might be my favourite, but it is a mm. bit of a Sophie's choice because they're all beautiful. <laughs> you mentioned then Alexa Wilding, and I think it's really interesting that Rossetti substituted the features of um, Fanny with Alexa for Lady Lilith. And how do you, um, could you talk a bit more about that? And about the difference, <laughs> I suppose, between Alexa Wilding and Fanny Cornforth as, um, as models and muses? I mean, oh, Alexa is a fascinating person because we do not know I mean, as much as we kind of know that's not true about Fanny, we don't know anything about Alexa at all. She is mm. an utter enigma. But um, I think she was, well, she was younger. She was very icily beautiful. I mean, even in the photographs, she's very sharp featured. She's very kind of very standardly beautiful woman. And um, I just think he hit a groove because that's what, Frederick Leyland liked and so I'm not surprised that he made that business transaction Fanny and Alexa got on fine as far as we know because mm -hmm. Alexa used to go round after she'd been to Kelmscott and tell Fanny the dirt and, so, <laughs> which is, Wonderful. and, and I think the kind of myth that all the pre-reflect women hated each other and were envious of each other and mm. all that is very much played up because we have no we have no kind of evidence of that I mean Fanny yeah spoke about Rossetti's relationship with Jane Morris but I don't think she particularly hated Jane Morris it was mm. Rossetti's behavior that she wasn't keen on yeah she was just making and an observation exactly yeah. and so when Ellen Smith had rheumatism and couldn't pose Fanny mm. raised funds for her for her when you went around all of the artists to raise money for a, a fellow model who couldn't model and so the whole idea that Fanny was some sort of jealous spiteful possessive woman is just nonsense and I think mm. also plays into the idea that oh you know jealous women attractive man mm. nah. I think in comparison to like the brotherhood there's now this conversation around a pre-raphaelite sisterhood um I've just been talking to Jan Marsh recently and so how do you think Fanny kind of fits in that wider kind of conversation about the women in the group um I was thinking particularly as a kind of amuse of Rossetti's in comparison to Jane Morris and Elizabeth Siddle, but kind of more generally in the movement, because obviously she wasn't um, an artist, she's a modern muse. Right. So how do you think she fits into that wider kind of group of women? Oh, I think she's a difficult one because it's, a, it's one of those things I've got to be really difficult how I express it, but she's not special. And I think that's what makes her amazing is that mm. she doesn't do anything particularly exciting with her life um, apart from survive. But she doesn't do anything other than take care of Rossetti. And I think mm. that is 
he he obviously finds her very inspirational between 1858 and 1865 and then there are some mm. drawings and paintings or rather pastels of her up until about the early 70s mm. and then he really is only obsessed with Jane Morris and Alexa for his more commercial pieces but I think Fanny's role is to hold Rossetti together and for the fact that we have from 18 what's it about 1869 until because mm. he starts losing his marbles because he digs up poor old Lizzie Siddle until 1882 he could have died at any moment frankly he had a go at killing himself in the early 70s but Fanny glues him together and her mm. role in basically managing his mental health is it's really difficult to say what that is in terms of because mm. it's not muse it's not model it's nurse almost mm. but a mental health operative basically but it's <laughs> it's the reason we have Rossetti for an extra decade at the very least if not you know 20 years because yeah we wouldn't have had it not been for Fanny we would have missed out on those 20 years of paintings and mm-hmm. so that mm. is what sh- that's what we should be thanking her for not the mm. poor old fan. Not that she particularly found a very thankful task at times. Yeah. But yeah, that's why that's why she's important. Mm. Okay. So let's um let, let's talk about um Fanny's life post Rossetti then. So what actually happened? Um because I mean, with my understanding of her, she kind of just got completely wiped off the board. Mm. Um So if you just wanted to tell our listeners a little bit about her life post Rossetti uh, and what happened there. She, well, just before he died, they'd gone on holiday together um, up to Cumbria and he, she'd been helping him reduce chloral, the drug he was on. Um, Mm. But the, he also had a companion called Hall Kane and Hall Kane wanted to be the one who saved Rossetti. And so completely sabotaged, this joint effort between Rossetti and Fanny, which Rossetti recorded in a letter that he and Fanny had been working on this. But Hall Kane had started doing something else and Rossetti basically had a massive breakdown. And Fanny was sent home and the family basically took Rossetti off to Birchington where he died. They didn't tell Fanny where he was. They didn't invite her to the funeral. There are letters where basically she writes to William Michael going, I've just read that Rossetti is dead, basically. <laughs> please let me come to the funeral and William Michael doesn't let her. She is very angry because she's basically been completely cut out of the death of the man she loved. And so she attempts to get an IOU from which Rossetti had left her because she's cut out of his will and William Michael ends up giving her some money. And she is advocated by... um, A few of Rossetti's friends basically are like, go on, you owe her because she's been there. Mm. And which is an incredible thing that what's Dunton especially is very much on Fanny's side. And you wouldn't expect Victorian men to be kind of advocating on the behalf of this, this woman who everyone allegedly found so terrible. So she has a collection of Rossetti's paintings and drawings, which she puts on as an exhibition. And she manages to sell a few of those. And she's married to another chap by this point, and she's raising his sons. And then she's widowed and the money starts running out. 
and she's getting poorer and poorer and her son, one son ends up going off to South Africa and the other son dies. But she is rescued from complete poverty by um, Samuel Bancroft Jr., whose collection is now basically the Delaware Art Museum. And she sells him pieces of um, art because he's obsessed with the pre-Raphaelites, but he's also obsessed with Fanny because he can't, he can't get enough of the stories that she can tell him. And, she, and he loves it. He loves it. He loves going to visit her and he's always writing her letters. And she's, you can tell from her letters that she's just overjoyed at being the centre of attention. And he makes her feel kind of special and a part of the pre-Raphaelite story, which I feel that she really doesn't feel that she was up until that point. And after Rossetti's death, there are a series of very quick biographies where Fanny is cut out entirely. As soon as Samuel Bancroft Jr. gets involved, American kind of writers start writing biographies of Rossetti and they include Fanny because they talk to Samuel Bancroft Jr. And so in sort of like 1900, 1899, there's one by um, a a female writer who writes this Rosetta thing and talks about Fanny in a really lovely way. And Fanny is presented with a copy of this book and Fanny is like, well, this is amazing. This is amazing that anyone, one, recognises that I was there. And what a lovely, lovely thing. But poor old Fanny... Um, is elderly at this point and has nobody to look after her and so her sister-in-law ships her off down to back down to the south coast near to where she lives and basically leaves Fanny on her own and Fanny becomes deaf and a little bit difficult and so is taken off to Graylingwell Asylum where she dies Mm. in um, 1908 I think I remember rightly Mm. And yes, and so we have that final photograph of Fanny as she is checked into Graylingwell Asylum. And I I, I was horrified when I found out she ended up there, but Graylingwell Asylum was a very forward thinking place. And the man who ran it really believed that people could get better and that mental Mm. health states weren't a permanent thing or it's something that people could be taught to manage. But Fanny was very old and she had a fall and she died. And Mm. you just think, blimey that's extremely sobering indeed mm-hmm. yeah it's lovely she got that recognition though in her life and she felt you know she's being rewritten back into the story that's yeah. kind of really lovely to hear how would you sorry one more question Kirsty. how would you <laughs> kind of describe that collaboration between kind of Rosetti the artist and hers in their artistic collaboration I mean kind of what she brought as a um as a muse to the table as a model to the table I think it's not that's a, always, sorry, that's such a difficult question. <laughs> I don't think it's a it's a coincidence that he couldn't finish found because mm. when he's trying to do that kind of women as as like medieval maidens or women as kind of virginal flowers and stuff. And mm. when he tries to fit Fanny into that, oh no, I am a fallen woman, because the whole thing of found is that his she's this farmer's sweetheart who's gone up to London and mm. become a fallen woman, and the farmer finds her trapped in the cage of sin, like the calf in a net, and and she falls to the side and she's like, I do not know you. He couldn't finish it because Fanny didn't give her rats monkeys, did she? She's just like, <laughs> Yes, I've come up from the countryside and now I live in Soho. And she's so jolly and happy and delighted that she's still alive, unlike most of her family. <laughs> that I think she brings a kind of um, 
just doesn't care ness to his art so the women from like that point he then does bocca bachata which is a woman who does not give a damn basically and <laughs> that is basically funny in all the pictures she's a woman mm. who doesn't give a monkeys and that mm. continues through his art the women become very very strong and the pictures of jane morris are even when she's being like um the wife of Ptolemy, where she's up in the tree and she's looking sad with her little wedding mm. ring. She's huge and she looks like she could handle herself in a fight. <laughs> and I think she brings that kind of strength, female strength to pictures in yeah. for the rest of Rossetti's life that weren't mm. there before Fanny. It's a yeah. lovely note to that... finish on, I think, by the way. <laughs> this is a very positive, uplifting note to finish on. I love it. Uh, did you want to quickly tell our listeners how to find or how to grab a copy of your latest work on Fanny Cornforth, by the way? Yeah, I mean, all good bookshops or you can go directly to the Unicorn. Um, here's my publisher, the Unicorn Publishing site. and um, But you can get it off Amazon or wherever you wherever good books are found. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, uh, what we'll do is we'll, we'll add a link to it to the um to the tagline of this of this episode when we do publish it. So, uh, if people are interested in reading more about Fanny Cornforth, I promise you it is a, such a worthy read. It's a fantastic book. Hannah and I will endorse it anyway. You know, I'll die on this. <laughs> I'll die on this hill with this book. It's brilliant. As is pre Raph Girl Gang, by the way. I love that book. <laughs> and that was that's what started it all for me um so yeah if you if any of you listeners wanted to grab a copy then you're um then you absolutely will be able to do that uh thank you so much for coming to talk to us today about all things oh, fanny cornforth kirsty my pleasure it's been we lovely. could really chat with you all day long about <laughs> it all because it's honestly yeah. so interesting um so yeah thanks again and thank you to our listeners for listening to another episode of the podcast and we'll see you next time Thank you. Bye. Mm-hmm.